Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Make this the year you take control of your career. Earn your online MBA from the leaders in online education. Indiana University's Kelly Direct Online MBA. Students learn from the best with the best. The innovative curriculum includes immersive experiences in the U.S. and abroad, and the program's 100% in-house approach keeps the cost affordable. Experience the exceptional. Apply at go.iu.edu slash online MBA. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and he, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. It's questions day, Kieran. We can't have a third week where news, gossip, nostalgia about 1970s TV shows and the contraceptive qualities of Dennis the Menace get in the way of our lovely listeners and their questions. In fact, we're even recording this earlier than normal in case a big story breaks. And I don't know any other pod, Kieran, which thinks missing a big story is the way forward. So if Lionel Messi has bought Derby County since Friday, we'll get to it on our next show because we have to do questions, Kieran. Got me? Uh, okay, I, I've, I've got a couple of stories which I, I spent about four hours researching this morning, but but we'll Jeez. we'll knock them back to we'll knock them back to to Thursday. So uh, Rochdale fans, Newcastle fans, we know that there's some stories about your clubs, but How we, we do, we do, we do a lot of a lot of questions. We've also researched <laughs> what's happened at Rochdale, Kieran. Well. Matt Southall, who was the uh, owner for a very short period of time uh, at Charlton, uh, where the where the club's expenditure on Range Rovers and uh, uh, swanky apartment rentals went through the roof, uh, mm. now appears to be in a position where he's trying to buy twenty five percent of Rochdale, and I think it's fair to say uh, Rochdale fans aren't happy, and Charlton fans are giving him the nod. So yeah, we'll, we'll look at that in more depth. Well, now hang on a second, Kieran, because we discussed Rochdale a, a lot recently. This twenty-five percent shares, because you you were discussing how many shares were left to buy. So, who has he bought these shares off? Are these the, the missing shares from fans that he's bought? Or? No, no. This this is from the you know, the guys who who bought forty odd percent and, and were trying to take over Rochdale. Yeah, and th- I think we discussed this with, uh, with with the guy from Rochdale Trust at the time. Yeah, yeah. What, what exactly are they going to do with them? Um, yeah, are they going to sell them back to fans? Well, they, if, if they're selling twenty five percent to to Matt Southall, it's uh, yeah, it's frying pan to fire situation. Uh, so we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll try and get uh, a bit more information on this as well. Well, from what we know about him, Kieran, what we learned about him back in the day, early in the pod when Charlton was a big story, he won't have bought 25% of the shares for the fun of it. So clearly he's looking to buy the club, isn't he? He's uh, he's, he's up to something and the something uh, doesn't doesn't involve good news for Rochdale. That's all right. I can say. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm heading for the North East this weekend, Kieran. So in case anybody in that area hears my voice and goes, oh, he's the price of football bloke. Let's ask him. Yes. Um, to save me doing what I normally do, say so email Kieran. I don't know. I forget from week to week. I just read the <laughs> stuff out. What's happened at Newcastle now? Um, well, there was um, th- there was a legal case uh, which went through on Wednesday and Thursday. There were some quite interesting revelations, accusations that the Premier League threatened to kick Newcastle out of the Premier yeah. League. Didn't go down <clears throat> particularly well. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll take a look in. So we'll 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 get look at it on a more granular basis uh, on, on Thursday. Okay. Sorry, Ken. You want me to pour sugar on my script? Is that what? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what looking at something on the I'm not sure I've ever had occasion in my life to look at something on a granular basis. Uh, okay, I shall look, I shall look forward to it. Uh, <clears throat> not as much as I look forward to a weekend in Tymouth. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, questions, Kieran. We do have a lot. And the first two are from people that have been very patiently waiting because we 
possibly made the mistake of telling them that we weren't reading their questions out last week. But <laughs> Paul Cullen, your patience is rewarded. Uh, Paul's question is about Everton. It says, Everton Football Club have recently been given the nod to build their new stadium at Bramley Moor Dock on the banks of the lovely River Mersey. And the owner, Farhad Mashiri, has indicated he will contribute roughly £100 million towards building costs, but how will he raise the remainder, which has been estimated at £400 million? What sort of guarantee will be needed to secure loans and how and for how long will repayments be structured? Right. Um, looking at this, uh, clearly you know, Farhad Mashiri has been a very benevolent owner of mm. uh, Everton Football Club to date. Um, and also his former business partner, um, uh, Alicia Usmanov, has contributed significantly towards the, the naming rights yeah. um, and uh, is, is a shirt sponsoring one of his companies of, of the Everton women's team. So you know, Mr. Usmanov might, might chip in as well. But in terms of the, the sort of the third party funding, this is, this is going to come from two sources, I understand it. First of all, um, the local council. Now, this is this is perhaps a, a little bit more twitchy because you know uh, I, I work in the magnificent city of Liverpool, mm. and it, it's a city which is split. Um, so the uh, the mayor is uh, quite famously a, an Everton fan, yeah. um, and and the council have said that they they would be willing to lend uh, you know perhaps up to thirty million pounds. Uh, to Everton, um, and, and they'll point out that you know other councils have lent to to clubs, uh, you know Manchester City, Spurs, West Ham, and so on. Um, they also believe that they can um, uh, that that the new stadium will qualify for a grant of about fifteen million pounds <coughs> because it will be part of a regeneration project uh, at Bramley Moor Dock. Um, and, and they've done an economic impact report. I'm, I'm always a bit sceptical about these things, but you know, mm. it, it, they do look very positive. The main, um, the, the main source of funding, however, will come from what is known as a private placement, um, and, and that's where Everton will effectively uh, give some IOUs to some banks, and, and this is sort of the... The, the approach that was taken by Spurs and, and Spurs have ended up with uh, I think it was six hundred and fifty seven million pounds worth of of, of debt. Um, so expect to see some investment banks uh, become involved with this uh, because of the, the large sums involved. Um, and in terms of how's it how's it going to fund? Well, you know, Spurs don't have to repay their loan for at least another 15 years. Mm. And during that period, it's the equivalent of an interest-only mortgage. So um, what will happen if uh, if all parties are happy uh, is that when we get to the repayment date, the bank will say, well, you, you've not got the four or five hundred million pounds in the bank. Uh, we're quite happy to roll over the loan. So I, you know, if, if the bank's happy with the interest rates that they get, and Everton are happy, then you could see this as being a sort of a fairly long-term funding issue. And the way that it will pay for itself is that the the additional money that Everton generate from matchday income, uh, from events taking place at Bramley Moor Dock, um, that will more than cover the interest bill. Presently, Everton, they only make about £15 million a season from uh, from Goodison in, in terms of matchday. Now, that compares to... Um, Spurs making around about 120 million. So you see, there is a there's a huge gap. Mm. So I think the, the the rationale behind this is that yes, we'll have to pay interest, but the the extra money coming in, um, mainly from hospitality, uh, from events, uh, and, and clearly t- season ticket sales will uh, will contribute as well. But you know, Everton is it, it's known as the people's club for a reason. You know, it, it's uh, it, it's it's very much rooted in the local community. I don't think that uh, Everton will be able to to increase season ticket prices in the same way that Spurs have done since <clears> moving to the, <throat> their new stadium. It, it's strange, isn't it? Spurs borrow the money to get their new stadium, make an extra one hundred and twenty million pound a year. And yet, still aren't expected to pay that loan back. That's magic, isn't it? That's a big <laughs> business. The, the the council interest one is interesting, uh, Kieran. Apologies for using that word twice in the same sentence, because uh, as we know just from recent events, local politics on Merseyside can be volatile. 
can't they? So council involvement, you'd kind of probably want there to be that to be minimal, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, pol- politics on Merseyside is uh, is, is never dull. Uh, just just Google Joe Anderson uh, for that, folks, mm. uh, and, and he's uh, uh, he, he's a character. We'll say no more than that. Right, okay. Um, and right, we, uh, we, we, we'll we'll move on, Kieran, because we yes. know what that we know what that means. Whenever when when you're in a pub, you don't know, and somebody walks in and you go, "Oh, he looks interesting." And somebody says, "Oh, yeah, he's a real character." You go, "Right, I'll go to another pub." <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> he seems to have ten other real characters with him, <laughs> um, none of whom seem to be particularly happy that I'm in their pub in a red and blue scarf. Uh, Conor McGuigan has also been on hold for three shows. Um, I hope producer guy wasn't playing that jazz music. While he waited, <laughs> waiting for his question to be answered. Uh, Connor says that his club, QPR, as well as Nottingham Forest, were sponsored by Football Index, who, as we all know, went out of business earlier this year. Will this mean some of the sponsorship money went unpaid, or was it all paid up front? Um, I, I, sponsors normally pay uh, at the start of the season because they're, they're quite keen to uh, help to prime the pumps in terms of... Uh, the transfer market and also helping uh, the clubs yes. to, to fund right. things over <laughs> over the course of the summer when they when they've got no match day sales. So that's one of the things which is normally negotiated by clubs. Can't, can't guarantee that, of course. In which case, there's no bad debt to to worry about. But uh, you know, since since the last time we've spoken about football index, um, there has been a government report. And again, you know, if if people, I know some of our listeners are. Uh, as enthusiastic for these things as I've, I've, I've read the full report, which has been published on, on HMG's website. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the government was not very impressed. Uh, you know, the Gambling Commission appeared to have a lack of understanding of the nature of the business of Football mm. Index. Mm. Um, you know, was it gambling? Was it investing? You know, um, and, and this very, very uh, weird claim that um, there's a difference between the word stock market and the words stock and market next to each other. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so yeah. that, that was one of the defences used. Um, there's actually been a report in The Guardian today, and we're recording this on Saturday, the 2nd of October, um, which uh, had some emails where effectively said that the the uh, pe- people were, were you know, in communication with those in charge of Football Index, saying it wasn't a sustainable model and warning them uh, at a very early stage um, you know, whether those uh, w- whether those emails were you know dis- disagreed with, disregarded, or just binned, we're not sure. But uh, uh, it's uh, it's not reflecting particularly well on uh, some of the alternative investment methods which are currently available to people. If if the word investment is appropriate, which I don't think it is. Mm. It's only ten past nine, Kieran. How have you had time to read the paper already? Well, when when you got you know, Finley at about six o'clock, uh, come and nudges me with a slipper every morning, so I sort of get up uh-huh. and my I, I have a very strict routine. It's 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 six o'clock. I have to read the Athletic, the Times, the Financial Times, the Telegraph, and the Guardian, and then I'll take him for his walk. Okay, for new listeners, Finley is a dog, by the way. Just <laughs> I, I don't know why he wakes. I don't know why he wakes you up with a slipper. Has he got an old fashioned fetish? Yeah, no, let's not get into. Well, we're, um, we're, 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 I'm a Brighton boy. I'll say no more than that. <laughs> Cameron Thompson asks an interesting question, which, uh, to be perfectly honest, borders on a rant. I, I was thinking rant as well. I read yeah, it. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, talking of interesting characters in pubs. Um, why do fans, media, etc., continue to be hoodwinked by corporations that masquerade as clubs? My golf club is a club. It relies on members' subscriptions. My running club is a club. Crikey, Cameron's busy. Um, these corporations don't deserve block capitals to be afforded the privilege of being called a club. It won't solve the problems of our beautiful game, but let's call a spade a spade. I, I like Cameron, but... Um, <laughs> that I doesn't spill his pint. No, I, I suspect his mates have heard him say that a lot. And I imagine when Cameron turns up in the golf club bar, it's a, there's a, a murmur goes around, oh, Christ, it's all not a club Cameron. He's got a point, though. I mean, for, I mean historically, yeah, we forget the word club in football club, don't we? And he's, he's absolutely right. They're not, they're not clubs in any way, shape or form that we would recognise as clubs anymore, are they? 
that that's correct. Um, and if you if again if you go to company's house and, and look at the records, you will see that um, there are some interesting names. So we we just been mentioning Everton. I think Everton's official name is the Everton Football Club Company. So it oh, actually so oh, okay. so when they are set up, they were set up as. Uh, as limited liability companies, and that and the advantage of being a limited liability company is that if the company goes bust, um, then the owners are only responsible for the debts to the extent of the money that they put in. So that's why, if we take a look at Derby Foot County Football Club Limited, uh, Company Limited, um, it's got substantial debts, as we know, but. Mel Morris doesn't have to go and personally pay off those debts because he's, he's got the protection of limited liability status. Um, I, I, I can understand what what uh, I can understand where Cameron's coming from. What we do see these days, however, is is a recent creation, something called a community interest company, which is a social enterprise which is set up for for community benefit. And certainly, some of the uh, the fan owned clubs are, are taking advantage of this CIC status, um, and they are they can still pay dividends. They can still you know, aim to break even or make a profit, but they sort of straddle the um, sort of the old school companies there purely to make money uh, ethos of, of some entities and people who who take the view that a football club is is a, is a much broader sphere than that. But then you know, existing owners will often say, well, I've put a load of money into the club. I, I want the I, I'm quite happy with the old status as well. Yeah, and I'm quite happy to remind people that FC stands for football club, not football corporation. And of course, back in the day, they were they were simply that, weren't they? Back in the you know in Victorian times, it, it was a group of like minded Victorian chaps with big shoulders and big moustaches just getting together <laughs> to kick a ball about and and bemoan the fact that the war war wasn't going particularly well. And that's that's simply that, wasn't it? It would have been like a Sunday football team, just subscriptions, and and then somehow. Out, you know, ninety-two of them evolved into into professional football clubs out of the many, many hundreds. And people don't realise how many football clubs this country has tried to sustain. They became businesses. But Cameron's absolutely right. Initially, they were just clubs. They were just yep. fun. And that's gone out of the game, and partly because of us. Basically, we've 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 sucked a lot of the fun out of football. <laughs> we have, we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James Wilson uh, refers to something that you've said frequently, Kieran. Um, which is that host nations for World Cups tend to lose a lot of money. But, says James, FIFA seems to make a lot of money after a World Cup. So how does that work? <laughs> and, and could a World I think Cup... just answered his own question. <laughs> and, and, and could a World Cup be made sustainable, should FIFA decide that that's what they want to do? Um, yes, well, the reason why a, uh, a host nation normally loses money um, is that let, let, let's just think about the logistics of this. You've got to have, you know, prob- a minimum of eight uh, stadia, which which uh, satisfy FIFA's regulations. So, mm. you know, in, in terms of lighting, TV facilities, access, infrastructure, all of that. So that's very expensive to set up. Um, you... Uh, you you have to look at the ability to take on all of the football tourists that are going to arrive for the World Cup, and the World Cup lasts for four weeks. Yeah. So you you know the the stadium is going to take two to three years to build the the, the new the new airports the uh, you know the new hotels that are built yeah they will take and and then what's going to happen to them afterwards? Mm. Um, so if we take a look at what has happened in Brazil, uh, you know I, I went to the South Africa World Cup and uh, you know it, it was it was a fantastic experience um, and it was put on for my benefit by the host nation and the hope is. But you're going to go back from the World Cup and yeah. say to people, "Oh, South Africa's all right. Why don't you go there on holiday?" And you go, you go back to your mates. You say, "Yes, yeah, South Africa was great. Absolutely, absolutely wonderful time." Would you go back there? I said, "Well, well, I've just been there, so I wouldn't go back." Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you, you realise that the uh, the glossy brochures put together by the management consultants who are pitching on behalf of politicians. Um, 
the, the numbers there, uh, you know, to me, it's it's pure fiction. You know, I, I could drive a, a coach and horses through through their projections very easily. So, so they they always they always pitch to FIFA and they always try to pitch to the local population is that yes, it's going to involve money to set this up. Um, but th- there will be legacy benefits, and the legacy benefits is that you've got a a football stadium or, or a stadium uh, which is now it, it's effectively mothballed. Um, it, it's got maintenance costs to incur after afterwards, and and nobody's using it. So FIFA make money because they insist, uh, as one of their rules, is that the host country gives FIFA and all of the players charitable status mm. during the course of the competition, which means that FIFA pay those taxes. Um, so, you know, that's less money coming in for the host nation. Um, so un- unless you have deep pockets or unless you've got a politician in charge who is is uh, effectively, he, he's pitching this as part of a, an, an election campaign. You know, vote for me and I'll bring you the world. Everybody wants, you know, People want to see the World Cup, and, and it's yeah. We, we we can remember the Olympics. Uh, you know, it, it was a fantastic mm. four weeks, but there's there's huge legacy costs uh, afterwards. So um, the only way it could be done on a sustainable basis to get back to James's second half of the question is either a to have it hosted by a comp- by a country which has existing large stadia, but. You know, FIFA mm. wants to to expand. You know, it, it wants to get the World Cup around the world. So, yeah, that's that that's fine if you are, uh, you know, here in England, Germany, you know, many of the European countries, even the US. Um, yeah, that that would work. Um, but yeah, that that's not part of FIFA's remit. Um, or B uh, to end up with something similar to what we experienced with the European Championships, and to to have it taking place in in more than one nation. Now the you know, the the twenty twenty six World Cup is taking place in uh, Mexico, um, you know, Mexico, the USA, and Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we were discussing before the show how we we quite enjoy train journeys well if you're going from the southern south of mexico to to canada you know that that's uh, you, you you must be a major league train spotter to enjoy that mm. let's not <clears throat> pull up that thread of what we discussed before we record kieran because frankly train journeys is one of the only ones we can actually broadcast out loud. Um, <laughs> it makes us sound really dull. Yeah, they talk about train journeys before they do the podcast, those two old blokes. And, of course, as we've discussed on the pod, Kieran, as you mentioned, for a country like South Africa where the existing infrastructure isn't as firm as, say, a country like Germany, it costs them a, a huge amount of money the country hasn't really got. And then, of course, even if they were to make money, none of that is trickling down to the vast majority of the population, most of whom couldn't afford the ticket prices to watch the games in their country anyway. And in in Qatar, you've got the opposite problem. They can all afford to watch the games, but have no interest in in football. So it's it's a strange process, this lottery stroke bribery competition that brings a World Cup to a particular country, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, I've said on more than one occasion, you know, FIFA is a is a mafiosa organisation, mm. and it and it runs on that basis. Uh, and uh, you know, it, and, it, and I know producer guy will be listening. I, I can say that because you've only got to look at the number of uh, FIFA officials who have now been you know barred from the sport, yeah. uh, or uh, are are on the are on the wanted list of uh, of the FBI, and who are uh, not travelling to the USA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Burke says, although Burnley are not my club, I'm intrigued by Kieran's high regard for how well it's been managed in the past. And that's the second question running, Kieran. People have obviously been listening to what you say. That's nice. <laughs> yes. um, how much did the new owners pay for Burnley and who receives the money? Was it shareholders? And if so, did they make a handsome profit? I ask because I always got the sense this was one place where the club came before the owner, or as Cameron would say, the corporation. Comes, <laughs> comes before the owner. Um, well, in, in terms of the sale of Burnley, it was sold. I think it's around about one hundred and seventy million pounds, um, and, and that was for eighty four percent of the shares. And and those that that's, that those sales were from the existing shareholders who have made all of the money. Mm. Um, so they they have benefited significantly from their their tenure as as the guardians of Burnley Football Club. Um, 
And uh, one of the reasons why I said I, I felt that we were really well run was that the fact that they never put any money into the club. Mm. You know, they ran it in such a way so that it was sustainable. It, it did have a break-even model. Um, and, uh, you know... Who, on, who, on, Kieran, who were those shareholders? Was there one major shareholder that sold it, out? There, there was about three or four. I think one guy was called Mike Garlic, Phil Garlic. There were a couple right. of others. Uh, so it was mainly, I think it was mainly sort of three major shareholders. Right. Um, and, you know, they, they worked very well uh, in terms of their strategy. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Sean Dyche fan. Uh, yes, you know, I, I think he's, uh, he's done an amazing job. Um, and, and you know, he, he knows exactly what he wants from his players in terms of recruitment, drilling, you know, and so on. Um, so, so that's why they, they always managed to break even and, and they became attractive to investors. What the investors have, have acquired, uh, and, and I think this sort of, you know, to link to, to John's question, Yes, they've got the property assets. When when the new owners came in, Burnley had around about four, I think uh, forty two million pounds in in the bank account. So mm. that money was then effectively used as part of the the hundred and seventy million pounds which went to the um, the the previous owners. And on top of that, uh, ALK, who are the, the the company which is now running Burnley, they've borrowed um, yeah, about sixty million. So you know, uh, uh, the, the new owners haven't put all of that one hundred and seventy million into the club themselves. They've right. used the club's existing cash and they've borrowed on top of it. And yes, they've topped that up to to make the final payments. Now, Kieran, this is going to seem a really silly question, but that's what I'm here for. We know that. Say, if the new owners of Burnley had approached the previous owners and given them 170 million quid cash, just bought it outright with their own money, yep. would that 42 million pound that was in the bank then become their 42 million pound? In, in effect, yes, because if you, if you are a majority shareholder, then you, you have access to the assets of the company that you've just acquired. Right. Okay. So yes, yes, yes. So it's, it's 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 not it's not a silly question. As as I tell my students every week, um, the, the only silly questions are the ones that we never ask. Yeah, but Kieran, I, I hate to break this to you, but ninety percent of your students can crack that code. Essentially, because I, I just realize you say to me that's not a silly question. I I can picture your face as you say that, Kieran. It's it's not an angry face. It's more a disappointed one that I felt I had to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> Your, your students will go home thinking, oh, I asked a silly question. And sir was nice. Do they call you sir, by the way? It's just occurred to me. Um, it it varies. Um, some call me sir, which I hate. So yeah, I, I, I knock that on the head straight away. Most call me Kieran. Um, uh, and occasionally, I'm called Professor. And, it, and as a result of recent events, even more occasionally, I'm called the Baron. <laughs> Oi, n- normally from from uh local students hey baron hey baron hey that's very funny i always had you down as one of those trendy supply teachers from the 70s who comes in and says hey guys you can call me kieran none of that old-fashioned patriarchal sort of stuff you can call me ms mcguire if you want um another question <laughs> Another question from another John, uh, John Vince. Hello, John, friend of the show. Um, John has a question about a subject that I think is probably discussed more by our listeners, certainly the ones I bump into, than any other at the moment, and that's gambling and football's relationship with it. Um, and John says, with the obscene amount that the Bet365 boss earned, as discussed by us just last week, an eye-wateringly obscene amount. How much has the betting industry given to help problem gamblers over the pandemic period? Should betting adverts have been reduced during that time when millions were stuck at home looking for a distraction and instead may well have ended up chasing losses they can't afford? And it was, it was what I, I'd say an obscene amount, Kieran, but she's she's earned that money. It's four hundred twenty one mil plus about plus about sixty five million on top in dividends. So five hundred million pounds. Yeah, yeah. It, it is an obscene amount, isn't it, really? But she has earned it, to be fair. Yeah. Um, so, so John's question is is a valid one, and as I say, Kieran, this is it, this is something that our our listeners really, really want to discuss, and I I don't think it's just our listener. I think I think increasingly gambling in football is something that people are becoming more and more concerned about. 
Yeah, okay. Um, let's be honest. There's there's two types of problem gamblers. First of all, as far as the gambling industry is concerned, first of all, there's the, the professional gamblers who win. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, the, the gambling companies are actually very, very good at dealing with these problems because mm. what they do is they close down their accounts. Yeah. Um, and people say that's not true. Um, I'm going to try to get a professional gambler to come on the show. To you know, we're not going to. It's not encouraging people to gamble because it's it's uh, you know it's it's just being honest with the the processes and, and and the challenges faced by people who do that. So I've 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 been in contact with one person. I think he's he's willing to come on the show. But you know, the other type of problem gambler is it's it's a problem for the individual. Yeah. Um. And um. What is the industry doing? Well, you know, the industry does provide funding for the likes of GamCare, which which provides support for people who have got some form of addiction to gambling. Uh, the industry will point out that it's made the the following measures. You know, you you now have the the option to have timeouts, deposit limits, um, uh, you know, holidays from from gambling and so on. Um, and that's and and you will see. I think now, sort of, yeah, it's about one in three probably adverts that you see from the gambling company saying, "Look, we're the good guys here. Um, yeah, we are trying to help you." Um, but there's there's some things that that make me feel um, uncomfortable. I mm-hmm. I was asked to talk to a uh, an all party parliamentary group uh, on on the issue of of the relationship between football and gambling. So, mm-hmm. as you know, yeah, I. I, I like numbers, and, and the reason why I like why I don't gamble is because I like numbers. Mm. Um, but uh, as part of my presentation, I worked out how much uh, how much money the, the gambling companies are making, and they, they operate on a, around about a five percent return. You know that's that's their margins, and then you can work out you can extrapolate from that just how much money is is being spent uh, in terms of, of total wages. Um, and and that's that's you know twice the NHS budget. So you know we, we, it, this country has a gambling issue. Mm. Um, and could the gambling industry do more? Well, as, as part of sort of the, the research into that, I say so I don't gamble, but I opened up uh, an account with a bookmaker, put on one bet, just to see what happened. Mm. And what intrigued me was I was then bombarded by. Emails, but these emails were were personalised. The yeah. email wasn't from Paddy Power or William Hill. I can't remember the name of the the gambling yeah. company. It was it was Steve or Angela at mm. William Hill. Hey, Kieran, you, you, you've been a bit quiet for the past few days. Tell you what, we'll we'll we've missed you. Yeah, and mm. uh, now you know, I'm I, I can deal with that because I'm I'm not interested in gambling. But if you are a vulnerable individual and you're desperately trying to stop yourself from getting sucked in you're feeling down you've you might have a little bit of money or you've got access to some else somebody else's cash and you say right I'll, I'll i'll just put on the one and then we get back into that that routine and looking at the report from gamcare they said that 86 percent, i think of of problem gamblers said it's all to do with online because yeah. it is so easy to, to place a bet online. And the other big issue is that, you know, we come at this from, from the perspective of football gambling. Actually, football gambling itself isn't the biggest issue. It's the fact that it's a gateway to online slots. Yeah. Because what will happen is you put a bet on the football. And the thing is, football matches are only taking place during, during, in the in the evenings, midweek, and over the weekend. Well, yeah, you know, the gambling companies say, well, you know, why can't we why can't we be taking on these punters for the rest of the day? Um, and the, the the big advantage from their point of view in terms of online slots is, of course, the odds are fixed so much in favour of the betting company. If you are if you are a if you are a professional gambler, you can actually make money, but you know, through having a very good strategy in terms of you know, football or, or it could be F1 or it could be, you know, there are successful gamblers. There are some professional gamblers who claim that they win and they don't win. You know, so, you know, I'm, I'm not encouraging anybody to take this up. It's it's a very high risk career to take. 
Um, but the so one, once you get the oh, oh Kieran, yo, we've, we've we're not heard from you. Tell you what is 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 a free five pound bet, and we'll give you twenty free slots, and, and yeah. you get into these things. Mm-hmm. And the the way that these online slots are organised is that they they trigger uh, adrenaline. Uh, you know, in in the way that the color schemes, the lighting schemes, Ooh, in the cool. same way that uh, you know slot machines do in in, in arcades, and you know, we're we're old enough. You know, I'm old enough to remember going into the arcades at Brighton when I was fourteen and fifteen, and you know, losing losing my pocket money and, and my my paper round money and having to walk home. Uh, and you know, and and I learned my lessons there. But across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Pantscast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. You know, for some people, it, it can become very addictive, and that's what they're trying to do. It's it's a gateway drug, uh, mm. football gambling to to the where it's all stacked in favour of the house. There's a couple of issues there, Kieran. Professional gamblers have, have got it sorted because many professional gamblers will maybe will maybe only have seven eight bets a year. Yeah, but, but there'll be huge bets, and they'll be the result of a lot of research and a lot of you know talking to people, and they. They only need one of them to come off, and they don't have to gamble again for another, another month. At the other end, I, you know, I, I'll, I put a tenner on. I've limited myself to a tenner a week, and I'm very good at uh, only doing that. And some weeks I won't have a bet at all. But it, it drives me up the wall because you walk in the betting shop, and there's all these signs everywhere saying, take a rest, have you thought about mm-hmm. having a break, set yourself a limit. If if Ash, the lovely man who runs my off-license, was to say to me, have you thought about taking a break? I would say, yeah, I have, and then just go to another off-license. It's, you, mm. You're telling an addict to, to, to take a break. It doesn't work like that. And, of course, you mentioned football gambling, but the other huge problem is footballers gambling. Yes. I spoke to an ex-professional recently, who I can't name for obvious reasons, and, and he said he can almost guarantee that every single one of the 92 clubs in, in, in English football and in Scottish football and probably across the world there'll be at least two players that are off their game because they're stressed to the eyeballs about gambling debts. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of them, certainly at the higher end, a lot of them are given access to free free credit lines, etc. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem for football. And as we've discussed week in, week out, football itself isn't making any of the money out of the gambling. There's not even a levy on... It's, it's just... Something needs to be done. I'm I'm actually encouraged by the fact that in the past six months, it has become a subject that many, many football fans are becoming aware of. And and they're they're noticing things like the fact that kids' shirts can't have have the Mm. gambling sponsor on. So when Palace was sponsored by Man Bet X, which was a bizarre gambling porn site, you're not allowed to sponsor the kids' shirts. And, And fans notice this sort of thing and start to ask why. And also fans increasingly don't want to walk about I know a Stoke fan who he just won't buy the shirt, because yeah. he doesn't want to uh, <laughs> advertise a gambling company. So this is an issue that's it's still not being taken seriously enough. But I get the sense that it it will be. And let's move on to uh, another question, which in its own way, Kieran, is as contentious. It's um, <laughs> it's a question from Rob Matthews, and dear God, we're going to get tweets after this. Um, yes. Actually, well, let's, I wish I knew Rob, Rob Matthews' Twitter handle. He could get the tweets. Um, Rob Matthews says, would there be any benefit to Mike Ashley in allowing Newcastle to get relegated? Would this allow a takeover to go through with less scrutiny from the EFL? And would the Saudis still want to buy a championship club? Can you imagine, Kieran? Can you imagine Newcastle being relegated and Mike Ashley saying, calm down, Jules, calm down. I wanted that to happen. It's all a part of the plan. Can you imagine it? 
<laughs> it's uh, uh, the, the way things, the way Newcastle are playing currently, Kieran. You, would, you wouldn't bet on them being in another relegation struggle, and uh, it, it's an interesting question for Rob, clearly, because at, at the moment, Mike Ashley clearly has no intention of putting the investment in to make Newcastle a, 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 even a top ten team, let alone a, a European team. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, Mike, Mike Ashley is. He's normally very good at gauging what is the minimum amount he can get away with. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, they, they signed Joe Willock this this uh, this summer, um, and I think that was the only addition. Yeah. Um, and, and remember, I, I I dug out the numbers in terms of the the infrastructure spend of every Premier League club uh, in uh, over the last decade, and. Newcastle's spend was not just the lowest in the Premier League; it was it was vastly lower. Yeah, we, we, it was it was probably about yeah twenty percent of the uh, the next lowest. So it was mm. it was some, some amazing uh, yeah, amazing lack of investment um, from Mike Ashley into yeah he expects people just to turn up and, and pay the money over. Going back to to Rob's question, um, would Newcastle be subject to less scrutiny? Uh, by the EFL, um, I, I think that there would be potentially for two reasons. First of all, the EFL has uh, less resources. Uh, you know, the, the Premier League is extremely well funded, and they can afford to uh, invest a lot of money through you know, accountants and lawyers, and so going into uh, you know the, the small print of everything to do with the potential owner. Um, the, the EFL has problems in two ways. First of all, they're, they're having to look after 72 clubs instead of 20. Mm-hmm. And secondly, ev- every pound that they spend on legal and accounting and investigation costs is one pound less to distribute to the members, and the members are desperate for money. So there, yeah. there's, yeah. Th- th- I think they, they've actually got a tougher gig. Uh, I think the second issue is that, um, and, and we've all tried to cover this in a bit more depth, um, in in the next show, is that the uh, there are clubs in the Premier League who do not want any further competition. Yeah, um, you know, six into four doesn't go unless you watch certain <laughs> websites. Um, but, but but seven seven into four um, is is more difficult. So you know, if if Newcastle became the next Chelsea or Manchester City in terms mm. of having a uh, a ultra high net worth uh, owner who can afford to fund the club, then you know that competition for Champions League places, and, and we know that uh, you know especially from the perspective of the of the American owners that that's that's what they want. Yeah, that's why they wanted that's why they wanted Super League. They they wanted the benefits of the Champions League without having to win matches to qualify for it. So you know that yeah, there's going to be two clubs missing out. This season, I think we know they're probably going to be Arsenal and Spurs. You know, it, it has become, the big six is 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 in. You know, there's potential for that becoming a big four again. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, what the last thing that these clubs want is a, another club to potentially, uh, you know, break into the the cosy cartel that they already have. So you you can see the benefits of that. Would Mike Ashley want that? Well, you know, the, the Saudi owners might say, well, we are still willing to buy Newcastle United, but are we willing to pay three hundred million pounds for mm. a championship club? Yeah, we could yeah, when we could buy you know, you know, Sunderland went for about twenty five million. Mm. Uh, and they're not that far away. Appreciate they're not in the championship at present, but a fair chance they will be next season. Uh, you know, Derby were going, were going you know, the asking price for them. I've seen some documentation. You know, Mel Morris was looking for fifty to sixty million. Um, would you pay five or six times that amount to to buy Newcastle in the championship when you've got again a year without the the benefits of being in the Premier League? So I, I think it, it's it's a double edged sword from from Ashley's perspective. Mm. Would the club be easier to sell? Yes. Would he still be able to command three hundred million pounds plus? I don't think he would. Mm. I know we'll talk about this in more detail on Thursday, Kieran, but there there are two things. I mean, Man City, Man United, Liverpool can dislike the idea of Newcastle being taken over as much as they want. There's nothing they can do to stop it. It's a private company. Mike Ashley can sell it to who he wants. And and also, 
what's what's to scrutinise here? We're talking about Saudi Arabia buying the club. There's, there's, they're, they're able to afford it, and they're not going to be turned down by the Premier League as unfit and proper person. So um, it, it I, I think the, me slightly, the issue here uh, is Saudi Arabia has a testy relationship with Qatar. I think I've pronounced this right this time. And therefore, on on the back of that, uh, you now cannot use uh, uh, Bayin or Bayin uh, to to watch the Premier League in Saudi. So the the accusations which are being made is that the Saudi government is encouraging piracy of Premier League TV rights, and this is given the the owners of those clubs who have been lobbying the Premier League to prevaricate. Uh, in terms of the the potential Saudi takeover, to say, well, you know, how how can you possibly allow somebody in who encourages piracy of of uh, TV? Mm. Um, and, and you know, they're 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 harumphing, uh, and, and trying to uh, say that you know we're doing this from a from an ethical and moral perspective. Um, they're not. They're they're looking after number one. Yeah, of course. Um- Demeshis Sikdar is a friend of the show, and Demeshis says that while recently discussing a proposal to install a $1 million machine at our factory, my boss and I were asked to submit a thorough business plan, including a breakdown of expected ROI and expected payback period in order to get management approval. I was wondering whether football clubs have to do similar when spending millions on players. And then Hemisphere <laughs> gives us the pleasing image of, did Man United have to do a PowerPoint presentation to the Glazers <laughs> before getting the £80 million for Harry Maguire? Which I, I just I just love that image of the Glazers going, yeah, he seems like a good player. You got any pictures of this guy smiling? <laughs> he's, he's not a happy guy. His head is that size. It's not perspective. It's like it's, but it's it's a fair. Actually, you know, again, one of the reasons why I love doing this pod, as we've always said, is that our listeners come up with with angles that you hadn't thought of. You're asking the owners to cough up forty million, eighty million, a hundred and twenty million pound for a player, and expecting them to take your word for it that they're worth the money. Yep, yep. Um, in, in terms of Devishish's question. We are increasingly seeing clubs making investment decisions in talent um, with some view to getting a financial return. So um, that's why if, if uh, I, I went through all of the transfers, uh, I think it was in the summer of 2020 or 2019, I was doing a, a talk for somebody and I said, every single player who has been signed for a fee of more than 20 million pounds is 25 or younger. So what clubs are doing is that when they are signing players, um, first of all, they're putting them on long year con- on long contracts to protect the investment. And secondly, they say, well, you know, if, uh, if, if he half comes off, you know, we, we, we'll be able to get that money back in three years and we can sell him at the age of 28. So um, th- there are more, uh, there are more nerds involved in the, uh, in the uh, in, in the investment decisions, um, and uh, some clubs are coming at this from more of a spreadsheet angle than before. Now that causes issues when you have got what's best described as old school managers who mm. say, you know, "I know him; he's a good lad. Yes, he's twenty nine, but." I still think we should go and buy them. And then you've got the the data analysts and you've got the finance people saying, well, we offer him a four-year contract. You know, he's 33, 34. He's, he, he, yeah, he's, yes, he's a professional athlete, but there's not many people who, uh, you know, even, even within professional football, who maintain their body to the same degree as Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, who is 36. And let's face it, at every single opportunity to rip off his shirt, uh, you know, he, he, he takes it and you go... Okay, yeah, yeah, he's, he's done a few push-ups, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 perhaps, perhaps I'll, to, I'll, I'll, I'll take Finley for a slightly longer walk today and try to get into a shape like that. Well, see, that's the thing, Kieran. He hasn't got a dog. He's, he's got time on his hands, hasn't he? he? He hasn't got to cram in two or three podcasts a week and going down for wonky chomps. He's yes. got somebody to get his wonky chops for him. Now, um, <laughs> our next question comes from Jonathan Davis and Billy Lead. Asked the same question, said producer guy. What are the chances 
Also, that might be Billy from Leeds. As, um, <laughs> yes, I thought that as well. <laughs> so, something seems to have gone wrong with the email. I think producer guy's cat may have walked over the keyboard at that stage. And as we know, solid gold cats have got heavy paws. <laughs> um, Jonathan Davis and Billy Leed um, ask, uh, again, a pertinent question, and one that hadn't occurred to me. What are the costs involved for those Champions League fixtures being played at a neutral ground? Who pays the club that owns the ground? Is it UEFA or the club that should be the home team? Um, in, in respect of what we had in COVID, and clearly you know, many matches did take place at neutral venues, um, UEFA will have negotiated a hosting fee with the, the club that uh, was... COVID neutral from a, an access perspective, and 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 that would have then come out of uh, the big pot of money which uh, which UEFA used to um, split between all of the clubs that participating in competitions. So, as the the circumstances in which we found ourselves earlier this year were fairly unique, um, it, it's a cost which is borne by UEFA but ultimately picked up by all of the clubs who participate in the competitions because there's less money to go around between them. Mm. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Eric Eels. Uh, and in brackets, it says pronounced Eels. Now, I don't know if that's come from Eric Eels himself or from producer Guy. Um, I know I struggle with names, but it's spelled E-A-L-E-S. I think I would have gone straight for Eels. Yes, yeah, a great, I, a great band, by the way, Eels. Big Eels, Eels. Eels, was a great band. Yeah, but it, Eric Eels wasn't the lead singer of Eels. No, no, I think no. I think we can establish that. that it'd be less. Was that Finley shaking? <laughs> yes. Wow. <he's, laughs> how wet is that dog? <laughs> um, or is, it, is Eels another of his trigger words? Ooh, Eels. <laughs> um, and this is a question. I sometimes wonder why new listeners stay for the next pod, Kieran. Really. Unless you've kept up with this pod from the start and you understand fully the references that are being thrown about willy-nilly. Um, when we first started this pod, Kieran, almost two years ago, I expected that this chap, the subject to this question, would be somebody we would be talking about on a regular basis because certainly he had a reputation as, as being um, difficult, volatile, shall we say. That's the second time I've used the word volatile on this pod. Um, so Eric says that he read recently that Paul Scally owner of Gillingham, will only pay agents if he absolutely has to because the agent represents the player, so the player should pay. That seems to make sense to everybody, says Eric. Does this mean, though, that in some cases the fee paid for a player is one amount and the cost to the buying club is that amount plus the agent's fee? Surely that's how it works in other areas. If a comedy club books Kevin, do they pay him and an additional fee to his agent or does he pay the agent? It depends if it's a cash gig or not, to be perfectly honest, Eric. Um, for writing work, no, I get a fee negotiated by the agent. She takes 10%, and that's – Eric assumed that's how transfers work. Most of us do, Kieran. But, and Palace famously lost out on buying Tim Cahill because Simon Jordan wouldn't pay the agent fee, and Tim Cahill said he wasn't going to pay it. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's – complicated uh, and, I've, and I've been in touch with uh, with our friend Jonathan with regards to this and he sent me uh, I think I think I've got 12 texts from him um, <laughs> and he has gone into in significant detail here which, which I'm very grateful for uh, Jonathan as always um, what's happening here is, is the club paying the agent for doing something so you know, if if the if the club has approached an agent to say, yeah, we're looking for a uh, we're looking for a left back, then then you know the 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 agent is perfectly entitled to uh, to pay the agent because he's he's provided them with a the service. Hmm. Alternatively, um, are we paying the agent on behalf of the player? So you know things things can get messy, and you you have what's sometimes known as duality where. The, the agent could be acting on behalf of the buying club, but also um, in terms of, of finding the player, but then the player himself for trying to negotiate a package. The, the agent will normally be paid um, on a percentage of the sort of the, the whole life deal. So if, if the, the agent negotiates a pay package of X percent, Sorry, of X thousand pounds per week, mm -hmm. then the agent's entitled to a share of that throughout the life of the contract. Um, sometimes the selling club will um, ask an agent to, to find a home for a player. 
Um, and sometimes that, that person, that agent can, can operate on behalf of all three parties. So I think the classic case here is uh, Rayola in respect of Paul Pogba. Juventus wanted to sell the player. Manchester United wanted to buy the player and the player wanted to move. And the agent managed to extract money from, from all of them. I think he made about 26 million euro from uh, from Juventus. Manchester United fa- fa- paid him a, a finder's fee for uh, helping to persuade the player who wanted to go to Manchester United to go to Manchester United. And now he will be taking a percentage um, of Paul Pogba's uh, wages and renegotiating contracts and so on. So it's uh, it's it's messy, but the how much money Manchester United paid and how much money Juventus received it was a mind boggling number. Uh, yeah, we are talking tens of millions. So, I, I, I'm slightly surprised by that answer, Kira, because from what you're saying, it sounds like the traditional model has disappeared completely. Because I, I I'm I, I'm with Eric. Basically, I, I, I assumed that most transfers went along the normal lines is that my agent approaches me, I'm happily playing for Bolton, and my agent comes along and says, Blackbird are interested. Uh, I've managed to add another million pounds to the asking price. I've negotiated the deal. I'll take my 15% uh, and I'll see you at Christmas for the party. But that's, that's not the case anymore. Is it, are any transfers conducted like that at all? Um, I, I imagine that, that some could be. Uh, yeah, I think at the upper echelons of football, it, it becomes more complicated. I think in if, if you are playing paying in playing in the lower couple of leagues, then the chances are, uh, you know, I, I, I saw a report in one of the newspapers today saying that below the Premier League, transfer fees are going to become you know they become rare in the championship and practically non-existent in leagues one and two in in a post-COVID environment. So under those circumstances, it would be a case of, you know, the, the age, the the players coming to the end of a contract and his agents having to work hard to find him a club. And that will be the case because, you know, the the player will be moving on and there'll be no fee taking place. So the the club won't be willing to pay uh, a finder's fee because they say, well, you know, there's, there's 700 players being made, being laid off out of contract this summer. Yeah, we're, we're doing your lad a favour. And, and our players, like, I, I don't like using terms like the old days. I'm going to have to in a moment with our last question. But in the old days, the idea was that a player would love a transfer because the player would be getting a 10% of the transfer fee as a signing on fee. Is that, is that gone, that notion? I think they, they, if they, if they don't ask for a transfer, they are still entitled to a, a slice of the registration fee. Um, and that's why you don't see uh, players putting in written transfer requests. Um, uh, they're, they're, and they're off. There are, and again, at the at the upper end of football, there the club players are incentivized to move by the buying club. Um, you know, and, and that that can be you know, for a variety of you know, assets as as well as as cash. Yeah. So yeah, as you know, Kieran, I'm generally not naturally nostalgic. Most not about life anyway, but certainly. I do occasionally miss the days when the only way you knew you'd signed a player was that they bought a desk out at half time. Yes. <laughs> and a bemused looking blonde lad in in a in a jacket two years behind the rest of the world would come out and <laughs> sign a piece of paper and you go, Who's that? I don't know, but it must be from the north, judging by his jacket. Um, our final <laughs> and, question and mullet. And mullet, yeah. Our final question don't tweet is a joke. Our final question uh, takes us back to the old days, Kieran. And it's <laughs> Mark Ridley um, takes us back to a terrible shithole of the ground. It really was. No disrespect, <laughs> Reading fans. And I say that as somebody who watches football almost week in, week out, a terrible shithole of the ground. Uh, Mark Ridley says, back in the mid-70s, watching football at Reading's Elm Park, uh, a terrace wag... <laughs> would shout out it's a club now, 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 now younger younger listeners will think a wag is oh that's something true. else <laughs> yeah to, uh, well also it's that it's the sort of expression you use a terrorist wag is like you use about somebody who shouts out it's a corporation not a club uh <laughs> every week but it, it, mark's quite right because there always was somebody who would shout pull your finger out i pay your wages um which I once said to a prostate doctor. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, 
But Mark Whitney said this, of course, was a time back in those days when gate money did contribute to a player's income. Could Kieran work out how much the cost of the average season ticket now contributes to a Premier League player's salary? Is that doable? Uh, well, yes, it's it's actually it's. Uh, I've written an article on this um, historically, so it, it's, it's kind of <laughs> no great surprise. Of course, you have. <laughs> um, in in the Premier League, the um, the average season ticket holder contributes twenty two pence of every one pound that gets paid in wages. Oh, that's more than I thought, actually. Well, it, it it does it does vary very 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 much from club to club. So, right. um, if you take a look at Spurs and Arsenal, um, they uh, Spurs is forty six percent, so forty six pence in every pound of Harry Kane's wages is coming from the terraces. Arsenal's is forty two. At the other end of the scale, uh, going back to one club we've already mentioned, uh, Burnley. Uh, Burnley fans only contribute seven pence oh. out of every pound's worth of of wages that the players earn. Uh, and you know, I looked at your club, Palace. You, Palace, it's nine. So oh. you know because Palace have you know they they don't rip the fans off in terms yeah. of season ticket prices. Yeah, yeah, we've had the discussion about the expansion of the ground. Well, at present. You don't have a huge prawn sandwich brigade no. subsidising and contributing no. towards match day and so on. So it does. It's, it's a huge variation from club to club, um, but on on average, it, it's around about uh, yeah, just over a fifth. So you're, you're you're paying the wages of two players at most clubs. At Palace, you're you're paying the wages of one. That's really interesting because of everything that you've taught me in this past two years, um, some of which has been about football finance, Kieran. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've I've learned that increasingly as each season goes by, gate money becomes less and less important. So I was half expecting you when you said twenty two pence. I was half expecting that to be twenty two pence a million, but um, that's much more than I thought. So it's still so match day income is still a significant contributed then. I mean, 22% is a fair old whack of a player's wages, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the total match day income in the Premier League in a normal season, we're probably talking around about 650 million quid. So, you know, that, that covers the, the, the average wage bill for, you know, yeah, our, our clubs are paying wage bills of just over 100 million. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it does it, it does make a difference. And, you know, club, clubs have have been hit through uh, having to play matches behind closed doors, but it's far that that twenty two percent is uh, is far higher uh, once you drop into the EFL because they don't have the benefit of the the huge TV deal. Um, so you know the the contribution made by fans in in, in EFL clubs is, is much greater. Well, speaking of contributions, Kieran, it's almost like you did that deliberately. If you would like to make a small contribution to our Always Free to Air podcast, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash price of football. That would be very kind of you. If you have any questions uh, for future questions pods, it's questions at priceoffootball.com, and I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire, who I know, even though it's now only half past ten, is itching to get to Brighton Arsenal at half past five. I don't know why, Kieran. You, 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 can't, you can't drink that much water. Well, yeah, but we've just announced our guest pies for the month. Guest pies? Uh, guest, oh, yeah, we, 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 we have guest pies. Guest pies? Yeah. Yeah, with, with chick, chicken and chorizo and <sighs> and a five-inch vegan sausage roll. Ah, oh, jeez. Game's gone, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Guest guest pies. Oh, I'd, I would... I would tell my dad that, but I don't want to ruin the last decade of his life. <laughs> Basically, still chuntering about goalkeepers wearing gloves, guest pie. Although he would, even even though his mind's wandering a bit, if I was to say to him, "Yeah, Dad, guess what club has got a chicken and chorizo?" Yeah, it's Brighton, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, well, thanks again, folks, for all the feedback. Uh, if you uh, if you want to support the show, variety of means. You know, Kevin's mentioned Patreon. The other way that you can do that is by going on to the Apple podcast app and and giving us a five-star review. Uh, it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I, I tend to read them and uh, uh, they're, they're very entertaining stuff. So you give us the five stars and you, you can write as rude things as you want uh, about uh, myself, Kevin, or even Finley, who, who's in a bit of a crisis today because oh. uh, you know, as, part of, uh, as part of the supply chain issues, 
there is a shortage of wonky jobs. Oh, my Lord. Goodness me. No. Yeah. Oh, it might have to be a chicken and chorizo pie for Phyllis. <laughs> it, yeah. yeah. well, it won't be happy with a vegan sausage roll, would it? No, of course he won't. I'd, I'd, I'm not even entirely sure that chorizo goes with chicken. Overwhelm the chicken. unless the. Uh. Mm. Never mind. It'll be some sort of local Sussex cured chorizo as well, wouldn't it, I imagine? <laughs> and a chicken that had a, lived in a hotel for all its life before being invited to take its own. Shocking <laughs> guest pie. I really, really, really ruined the rest of my day now. Guess. I'm sorry about no, that. In fact, in fact, you've enhanced it, so I can't wait to tell people that. As I say, all I'm going to say to Julian Chenery, you know that that bloke you were fanboying all over. He's he's going to Brighton early to get a guest pie. <laughs> bye, bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> I'm for the